to thank TJ for playing for us this morning. Thanks so much, man. All right, we got to give a big shout out. Uh, you guys know Casey Gunner, right? Casey, stand up. Where are you standing? Casey got engaged to his Brianne. Yes. And uh, so congratulations to them. That's awesome. That's really, really cool. Um, also got to give another shout out to, uh, in, our, in the room today, we have some special guests. And uh, so there in the back on the couch area, we have my nephew, Blake, and his wife, Addie. And so y'all can say hi to them. Um, they, they are from uh, Georgia, but they live in Dallas for six months before they move to Colorado. Um, so you guys are going to suddenly have a lot of new friends that want to come see you when you move to Colorado. Um, but I got to do their wedding like three years ago, and uh, it was a really, really awesome, joyful thing for me to do. So, um, all right, so I want to thank Kim for teaching last week. And uh, her section and today's section really could be taught as one big sermon. So if I could summarize all that she said, I would say it this way. Unity starts with humility. Unity starts with humility. I think we talk a lot about unity in the church, but we rarely talk about humility. I think we talk a lot about the need to not be prideful. We do talk a lot about that, I think, but rarely talk about just the concept of humility. But we can't deny that unity and humility are inseparable. You're going to see that throughout this section of Philippians chapter 2. And, uh, but I want to remind you, whenever you read, whenever you open up Paul's letters to the churches, there's always a story behind everything he's saying. Whenever you read books like Romans or 1 Corinthians or Philippians, it can look like Paul's just saying, hey guys, here's a bunch of things that I think. Because Paul is so wordy and he's just like deep, deep thoughts and it just sounds like he's just listing them off one after the other. And yet we have to remember that whenever Paul writes letters, um, he's doing it in the context of a story. And so that's not, that's also what's happening here in the book of Philippians. Kim talked last week about doing nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Now, when she got that, she actually picked the week that she wanted to speak, and that's the verse that she chose. And I was a little disappointed because um, when I was in, I think, junior high, uh, you guys know the whole, it's common in the Christian circle for people to select a life verse. Are you aware of that? People will say things like, yeah, this is my life verse. And it's kind of a goofy, weird thing. Like they, they put it on plaques and stuff, and they write it on stuff. They, maybe they tattoo it. But um, when I was a kid, I heard this verse, Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4, um, at some sermon. And I just adopted it when I was a kid. I wrote it on this. It wasn't nice. I took a piece of notebook paper and a Sharpie. And I wrote it on a piece of notebook paper. And I taped it to my wall by the light switch. And so I read it every day as I went to school. And it was on that wall for years. And so when I was young, it was like, this is my life verse, you know. And, uh, and now if someone asks me the question, like, hey, what's your life verse? I just say Genesis to Revelation because I'm a pastor and I have to, I have to value the whole thing, right? Um, but so I was a little disappointed that she got to preach my life verse. Um, but I'm coming the next week to talk about some similar concepts. So um, there's a story behind what Paul's writing when he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. 
in the story is in chapter 1, Paul talks about uh, people who are preaching the gospel out of selfish ambition. Remember that? We covered that in week 1 or 2. This is why in chapter 2 he writes about um, this concept of, of doing things not from selfish ambition or conceit. He says, don't be like these people that we talked about that I know are among you. Now, in last week's passage, Paul doesn't say just don't be selfish, but he gives them something to do. He says, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. And I want to remind you, the Christian life is not just about a bunch of don'ts. Many of us think the Christian life is about just a bunch of things you don't do. But anytime Paul, or even Jesus, when he's preaching in the Gospels, when they give a, a don't, they always give you a do. And so Paul does this in Galatians with, he says, um, do not walk in the flesh, he says, but walk in the spirit. So it's not just a don't, but there's a do. And the same is true here. It's not just don't be selfish, it's walk in humility and consider other people more significant than yourselves. And the way that we accomplish not being selfish is by being humble and considering other people more important than yourself. And I love that Kim used last week the analogy of sports because I love sports, first of all, but also if someone is selfish, it will always show up in every area of their life, especially in sports. And you go, I, I've been in Texas for 20 plus years. And you guys know who my NFL team is. I won't mention their name. Um, but I never had a college team. I never had a college team I supported. Because where I grew up on the East Coast, college football is not what it is here. You guys are insane about college football here. And I love that. I love college football as well. But I don't have a team. If someone said, why don't you, I'm like, who am I supposed to root for on the East Coast? Like, Virginia Tech? Like, what's the big deal, right? Do you even know their mascot? You came in in their mouth. Their mascot is the Hokies. I don't even know what a Hokie is. And I'm from the state, all right? So it's not that big of a deal on the East Coast, college football. But here, it's just insanity, right? And uh, so what I get to do is whenever, because I'm not, I don't have a, an allegiance here in Texas, I get to follow certain teams occasionally just based on certain players I might know or know of. So for a little while, I followed Baylor because um, a guy who went to Temple played at Baylor and running back up there, and I liked watching him play. So I kind of adopted Baylor for a little while. And then now I sort of follow UT because of a guy named Zach Shackelford who went to Belton High School. And so I like to watch. I've never watched a game to watch a center snap the ball. But now I do, because I like to watch Zach play and see how he does, see how his team does. So I've got a picture here if you don't know who Zach Shack is. Um, but he plays at Texas now, went to Belton High. And, and so I get to follow a little bit, just watching his career and stuff. It's fun to do. Now, here's the reason why this is really important, because I'm going to grab some water. I've been kind of under the weather. Anybody else sick? You guys sick? It's just me. Voice is almost gone. But to give you some background, when Zach was here in high school, he came here for the first couple of years of his high school career, and then he went to a different church across town. But he messaged me and said, he said, hey, Dave, I want to get involved in G-groups. 
I'm not at TBC, but I, I want to be involved in G groups. So he came and he did the training. He was a part of a, our G group leadership program. Um, did that for the last two years of high school. And I'm like, here's a guy who has this Division One scholarship coming, and he's going to go play football somewhere big. And yet he still wants to invest in young people, like underclassmen, um, while he's still in high school. That's pretty amazing to watch. And if you know Zach, one of the most humble guys you'll ever meet. Um, he's not a person that promotes himself. He promotes Christ. Um, just a really amazing, humble guy. Now, when someone is humble in this way, there's something in you that you want to see them succeed, right? You want to see them exalted and lifted up when you see someone who's truly humble. Now, what if Zach were someone who was cocky and arrogant and wore shirts that said, I'm the goat, the greatest of all time? What if he wore shirts that said that? Then all of us wouldn't, I I wouldn't be one that wants to see him succeed. I wouldn't be kind of a fan of UT right now if he had that attitude. It wouldn't happen. Because it'd be more like, it'd remind me more like this guy I went to high school with. I went to school, high school with this guy. I think I was like four years behind him. My brothers played ball with him and stuff. And this guy, he had everything given to him. He was, his parents were rich. He was good at basketball. He went to expensive basketball camps. He could afford to go to Duke basketball camp every summer. Um, I never played on a team with him, but I'd play against him in some pickup games. And I was, again, four years younger. I was not nearly as good as he was by any means. But he had this one move that drove me crazy, and it was like this very smug move on the basketball court where, obviously, I'm four years younger. I'm a lot shorter, and I'm in my defensive posture trying to play defense on this guy. And he would kind of drive at you like this, and he would bounce the ball really hard on the floor in front of you and then lift it up over your head and then go in for this layup. And so you would feel like the biggest fool playing with this guy because you're sort of swiping at the ball and you miss it and it goes over your head and it goes in for an easy layup. And that was his move, his signature move. And when he would accomplish it, he would just glare at you like this look, like I just schooled you. And everything about this guy just oozed arrogance and pride. And so to make matters worse so he's in games he wouldn't pass much he'd jack a lot of three-point shots he'd make a lot too but he'd take a ton of shots really pass whenever he'd make do something successful in a game you were you'd kind of give the half clap like you're glad for the team but not so glad for him and he just exuded this attitude and to make matters worse his parents got him this for his 16th birthday go to my next slide I actually looked online. This is the actual year and model of the car he drove. 16 years old, parents buy him a brand new black Corvette. And he would park in the edge of our parking lot at school. And he would take up two spaces at an angle so that nobody could ding his car. Like This is what I'm talking about. And it was like I wanted to ask his parents... Are you trying to make us hate your child? Are you trying to make us hate your child? And one day, the best thing that could have happened, happened. Somebody keyed his car. Like all the way down. Like deep. 
mean like into the sole of the car. They like keyed it all the way down. I know what you're thinking, but I did not do it. All right? I wish I had, but I didn't do it. Now, don't get me wrong. He was really good at basketball. He was a really good player. He was all-conference. He was team MVP multiple times. Our school started a Hall of Fame. He was the first inductee. So he was good, no question about it. But every time he played or won an award, something in you just felt repulsed. And the reason why, there was no humility. It was only pride. People who are prideful, we want to see them brought down. People who are humble, we want to see them lifted up and exalted. This is true even in the secular world. Even people who don't, know, who don't even know Christ, there's something in them where they value and they cherish the virtue of humility. I want you guys to do your first two questions. Just do questions one and two at your tables for a few minutes. All right, I want to spend the rest of our time trying to answer one really important question. And the question is, how do we get this kind of humility that we see in Philippians 2, verses 5 to 11? So turn to Philippians 2. We're going to look at verse 5 and take this verse by verse. So Philippians 2, 5, it says, Have this mind among yourselves. So just stop right there. So where does humility begin? It begins in the mind, like how you think about yourself. It begins in how you view yourself. So have this mind, meaning a humble mind, among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Take notice of that, one of the last statements. He humbled, Christ humbled himself. If humility is going to happen, it's going to be because you humble yourself. If other people have to humble you, it's not called humility, it's called humiliation. If other people have to do the humbling and bring you down a notch, that's something else entirely, and it's called humiliation. Same root word, but I think you know the difference. Humiliation is something entirely altogether from, from what uh, humility is. Now, some people have called this section of Philippians, verses 5 to 11, the linchpin of the whole book. That means it's really, really important. And there is so much theology in this little text. And we don't have time to get into all of it, but we're going to cover some things here. So here's the first question I want to wrestle with. It comes from verse 6. What does it mean that Jesus was in the form of God? What does it mean he was in the form of God? Well, it means... Go to my next slide, please. It means he is fully God and has always existed with the Father. He has always existed with the Father. Jesus is not a created being. He's God. He's always been God. And it says, the statement used here, it says he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. 
That doesn't mean like he couldn't grasp what it means mentally because he's Jesus. He's pretty smart. He knows things. So that's not what it's about. It means he did not count equality with God a thing to be latched onto. And you'll see how this ties into the next question here in a moment. He didn't hang on to or grasp all the privileges that come with being God. And so the next question I want to ask is, what does it mean that Jesus emptied himself? It means that he gave up his status and privilege as God. He gave up his status and privilege as God. But let's be really clear. This does not mean that Jesus became less than God or gave up his divine attributes. He didn't become less than God in order to come into humanity. The church has always taught that Jesus was fully God and fully man when he came to earth. We call it the incarnation. And the root word for incarnation is carne, which is where we get uh, words like flesh and meat. And so when you go to the store and see cans of chili, it says chili con what? Chili, it means chili with meat. And so in Spanish, carne means meat. It's the same root word. Carne, incarnation, Jesus comes and puts on flesh. And he takes on humanity. And he comes in the flesh. The closest analogy I can think of to him emptying himself of his divine privilege and status is a show that you might know of as, as Undercover Boss. Anyone ever watch a show ever? I know it's not really popular among teens to watch this show, but here's the concept of the show. I love the concept of the show because what it is is uh, they'll take a company and the CEO will decide it could be a big company where people down in the, the, the underlings of the company don't really know who the CEO is or what he looks like. And so this guy will take on, he'll, he'll relinquish the office and the status and privilege of being a CEO for a week or so. And he will come down and just do a regular job in the company. And they'll, they'll pair him up with somebody, him or her up with somebody, who they want to do the show about. And so they have this person, so this one show... Recently, there's this woman who works for a Major League Baseball team, and she's, like, doing the, the stuff at the stadium and all the stuff that's, like, hourly work and really hard work. And uh, one of the big wigs of the, of the Major League Baseball team that she would not even know what he looks like, he comes in and he works with her for a week, and she has no idea who he is. And, and she's teaching him how to do her job, like he's a new employee. And I love this show because... Um, you see this, this woman or any person in these, these companies who is low on the bottom rung and yet the CEO steps down with this person and learns from them and kind of learns what it's like to work in that company. At the end of the show, they will always have this big moment. Every time I see these shows, I cry, right? It's just an emotional moment because they will give a gift to the person who's like low on the rung. And this one woman, she's saying things like how she, she has to spend time in homeless shelters with her kids because of, things are so hard for her. And it's a really powerful scene where this guy who's a multimillionaire and he is already crying and he's, sa- he's saying to her, you know, we're going to give you um, a quarter of a million dollars 
to get on your feet and to get into a house. And she just starts weeping. And she falls on the ground weeping at what this man's saying to her. He falls down on the ground with her weeping as he's telling her the rest of what's going to happen for her and for her family. And she's just saying, thank you, thank you, thank you. And so what you see in this show is this person doesn't stop being CEO. They simply add a new role to them being CEO, which is I'm going to take on this role for two weeks and work with this person, come down into their world, and learn what it's like to be them. And then they, they bless this person immensely at the end of the show. Every episode, they, this happens. This is a picture of what Jesus does. He puts aside his status and privilege. He doesn't become less God. But he enters the world of those of us that are beneath, beneath him. And this is what Jesus does. And as powerful it is to see the end of these shows and this person getting this blessing from the CEO, the blessings that Christ bestows are even greater because he gives us himself. He doesn't just give us an improvement. He gives us himself. So Jesus, in a sense, is the ultimate undercover boss, right? Jesus is the ultimate undercover boss. He does undercover boss, wait for it, like a boss, all right? He truly is the undercover boss, ultimately. A.W. Tozer said it this way. He said this, he said this quote. Go to my next slide. He veiled his deity, but he did not void his deity. Jesus becoming human does not overshadow his deity. If anything, he adds humanity to his deity. And this is crazy. You may not know this, but did you know that once Jesus added humanity to his deity, that from then until eternity, which means forever, he will be always fully God, fully man. Even right right now, Jesus is still fully man and fully God. There was a time when he was God, but he wasn't man. He took on humanity. And ever since he came 2,000 years ago, even now, until eternity, he is fully God and fully man. And so this is what it means that he emptied himself um, and came to be with us. And then last question, what does it mean that Jesus became obedient to the point of death? We know the cross was the ultimate example of Christ's obedience to the Father. The cross was the ultimate example of that. Christ didn't come down and just live 33 years and then get whisked up, whisked up in a gold chariot, taken back to the Father. That's not what happened. He was subjected to everything we were subjected to, including death. But not just death. You and I are going to die a death, but um, Christ died a death that you and I will never, ever taste. What's the most humiliating death that you and I could die? It would be execution, right? It would be the most humiliating way to die in, in the U.S. You've committed a crime, and so they're going to put you to death because of the crime you committed. But even if you and I committed the worst crimes today, we would still die by maybe lethal injection or, at worst, electrocution. 
Jesus was not given a humane death by any means. Didn't do anything wrong, but subjected to the most painful, embarrassing, and humiliating death in human history. Crucifixion was so despised, Roman law wouldn't even allow Roman citizens to experience it. Did you know that? They considered it so horrific that in their own law, Roman citizens were not allowed to be put to death through crucifixion. They considered it that horrific. And yet Jesus is subjected to this inhumane treatment as the Son of God. He didn't just come to earth and live like we did and then just die a death like we're going to die. He went lower than we will ever go. He didn't just step into humanity and experience life and death like we did. He went lower than anybody in this room will ever have to go. This is how humble he was and how far he went to display his humility. He drank the cup of suffering in our place. And it was an act of obedience to the Father. Look down at verse 9. Therefore God was, has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of of God the Father. Remember the story I began with? Zach from Belton and from UT. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. This is the same pattern that we see with Jesus in this text. Those who humble themselves, as Christ did, will become exalted. Because he humbled himself, he's lifted up and exalted by the Father. Now this does not mean when it says that every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and every tongue will confess, this does not mean that everyone in the end gets saved and becomes a Christian. This is referring to the final judgment. Paul's saying that everyone will eventually acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. You might say it like this. Either we acknowledge, get on my next slide, either we acknowledge Jesus is Lord in this life leading to eternal life, or we acknowledge Jesus as Lord after death, leading to eternal death. Everyone will have to at some point, someday, acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. And we can do it now, leading to life, or do it at the final judgment, which leads to death, eternal death, eternal separation from God. The book of James says that... Even the, the demons believe that Jesus Christ is God. But they're not getting saved because they don't worship him as God. They believe in the fact, the intellectual fact that he's God. But they're not submitting their life to him and surrendering their lives to him. They're not getting saved. They can't deny the fact. And so to wait until final judgment to acknowledge that fact would be to acknowledge it in the same way that the demons have done it. And it's not to do it in a redemptive way. It is not to do it in a life-changing, transforming way. 
So the question you have to wrestle with, if you're sitting here and you're not yet a believer and follower of Christ, one day you will have to acknowledge that Jesus Christ is God. And the question is, why not do it now? Why not do it when it will lead to eternal life as opposed to doing it when it leads to eternal death? And let's be honest. Even as an unbeliever, I would imagine that you, you like it when people are humble. When other people are humble, you're drawn to them. When other people are prideful, you're repulsed by them. And the question is, why? Well, I would say it's been, that desire has been put there by God because you're made in his image. You like humility. So why not embrace the most humble person who ever lived, which is Jesus? Why not put your life in the hands of the Savior, who's the most humble person who ever walked on the face of the earth? And for you, if you're not yet a follower of Christ, the greatest act of humility would be to fall on your face and acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord and to cry out to him for the forgiveness of your sins and put your faith and trust in what he did for you on the cross and in his resurrection and then begin following him. You're going to see examples of that tonight if you come to baptism. Many of you got baptized a few months ago and you saw examples of that of people putting their faith and trust in Christ and his finished work on the cross and them deciding to display that publicly through baptism. That's what it is. And they're now following him in a life of discipleship. Seeing the humility of Christ should lead to our humility. So if you're someone who's already a believer and my question I want to ask you is, where is he calling you to greater humility? If you're a junior or a senior, where is he calling you to greater humility? Where is he calling you to pour into the life and to step down, to essentially lay aside your rights, empty yourself of yourself, lay aside your rights, and step into the life of a junior hire or a freshman or a sophomore? Where is he calling you to greater humility in your life? Because here's the secret to humility. I didn't want today's message to be like, you know, 10 steps to greater humility. Here's why. Because what happens when you accomplish the 10 steps? You become what? Prideful, right? Like, look what I did. I accomplished it, right? You're no longer humble. Now, how many of you all know about this thing called the game? Raise your hand. So if you don't know what the game is, really quickly, the rules of the game are what? Don't think about the game. Don't talk about the game. Or you don't acknowledge the game or you lose the game, right? That's the game. And it is official because it has a Wikipedia page. It does. Look it up. It is. It's a real thing. It was funny. I told my son about this little thing. Um, he already knows about the game as a fifth grader. And I tell him, I say, you know that like that's been done for years, right? And he goes, what? He goes, I thought the kids in my school made it up. 
No, son, sorry. But it's on the internet. Okay, so it's everybody knows about the game. If you don't, you now know about the game. So the rules of the game are don't think about it, don't talk about it, or you will lose the game. Listen, humility is like that. Humility is like this. The minute you start thinking about how humble you are, you lose the humility game. The minute you start keeping score of like, oh, look what I did. I accomplished the 10 steps to humility. You lose the humility game. The point of humility is not to think about humility or talk about how humble you are. Right? The point of it is to keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. This is how you attain humility, by not thinking about humility, as hard as that might be. Tony Morita says it this way. Humility ultimately leads to unity. He says this. As a result of adoring Christ and emulating Christ, we will experience unity as a people. Unity isn't the result of preaching on unity. It's the result of people adoring and emulating Jesus. That's why I want to put this passage before you. This, this passage is a rich passage in looking at the humility of Christ. And if you want to be humble, you gaze at the humility of Jesus. You keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Not yourself and how you're performing in the game of humility. Go ahead and finish your last few questions at your tables.